0: This feels really timely this morning to be um, t- taking up this, this topic of authority, doesn't it? And um, I think I shared about three or four weeks ago, and, and then subsequently um, Chris did a follow-up, and then the youth did a tremendous job last week, uh, still still buzzing with uh, how brilliant last week was. And um, so I want to just come back this morning to some teaching on the topic of authority, which, as you uh, members of the church will know, is is something that we said we do as part of a series looking at different boundary stones, things that the Lord has established to provide security and boundaries in our lives. Um, there's a lot to cover, and, and and what I thought might be two weeks will definitely not now be two weeks. But Richard's going to pick up uh, a chunk of this next week. Um, so we'll see how we get on today, but uh, this, this is part two of, of what I wanted to share, and I, I just want to, first of all, summarize part one, because it, 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 it really follows directly from that, and um, in view of the time, what I'd like to do is, is, is not look up any of the scripture references here from what I shared last time. Everything's available on, on the podcast, um, please go and, go and have a listen to that, but I, I began uh, this teaching last time by describing the two falls that took place the, the fall of Lucifer which is described in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and Revelation 12 um, in which uh, Lucifer said I will make myself like God I, I will rise up uh, and, ex- uh, and um, exalt myself above God and, and make myself like God and then uh, the, 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 what we often call the fall, the fall of man, in which um, Lucifer now, in the form of a serpent, says to Eve, did God really say, and then questions her about the commandment God had given concerning not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We explored all of that, some of the, some of the, um, the twisting of the words, etc., but both those Were issues of authority. Uh, To to be like God, to be higher than God, to exalt the the order God had established, to upturn that and rebel against it, and to question what God had said. And, um, and, And authority, in a sense, is the ultimate boundary stone. It establishes everything in the universe, in the cosmos. And we looked at three uh, important words, the word exousia, these are, these are the Greek words that are used, and they're all really significant. Exousia, which means, uh, is translated as authority and means permission or ability or right or power. It is the, it's literally the, 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 the right to rule, the right to exercise power, the power of ruling and governing, all those Concepts are all, all together. And by the way, I did promise notes, and then thought it would be much better to get to the end before those are distributed. So if you've requested them, request is noted. They're on the way somewhere out there. Um, the second word is "excephale," which means head. Uh, and, and quite simply means, means the head, but also has this metaphorical sense of the head over um, the authority over or the head over um, in a way that um, never implies dominance or superiority, but simply the order God has established. And we'll come onto that a lot more today. The third important word is the word hupertasso, uh, which means to submit or be in submission or literally to be under God's arrangement. I really love that aspect of this word. It means to be under God's arrangement. It's the word that's used when it says, um, when Jesus returns, all his enemies will be made, will be put under him, under God's arrangement, in 1 Corinthians 15. And then then when all his enemies have been brought under his feet, then Christ himself will come under God. So there's this fantastic consummation, uh, perfecting of God's arrangement. And it has to do with being submitted to God's order. Then uh, we went on to say that God himself uh, created all things. He therefore has authority over all things. And one one of the all things he created is all authorities, all rulers, all powers, all dominions, all things were created by God. Therefore, he is the supreme authority. And um, nobody gives God any authority, but but of course God gives authority, and we'll look at that today when we get very practical about the authorities in the church. God gives authority to those to whom he chooses to give it. And and first and foremost, he's chosen to to give all authority to his son. When Jesus um, is resurrected from the dead at the end of Matthew's gospel, he calls the 12 to him and he says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. And, and Jesus, who in his resurrection and his triumph on the cross has, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, has, has conquered every other authority and has now received all authority and with all that authority sends us out into the world. We must look within God himself, to see how authority should be properly outworked and properly expressed. And one of the problems, of course, and why this topic is not frequently taught in the church is because there are terrible abuses and misuses of authority, not only in the world, but, but tragically in the church at times as well. And um, we, I don't want us to look at any, any lesser example than the example in the Godhead because that's where we must look to understand how authority uh, properly works. So when we look in the Godhead, we find these um, these three or four things that are all so beautifully interwoven. We find, first of all, equality. Father, Son, and Spirit are the same in nature, in essence, in value, in worth, in... Um, in, they're the same in, in, in all those ways, but there's a distinction between them that is not to do with their nature or their essence or their, their character, but to do with their functioning, the way they work. And, and, and that equality linked with, um, linked with a distinction gives rise to a beautiful headship and submission within the Godhead. So that the father is the head of the son. That's that word kephale used in its metaphorical sense. The father is the head of the son. He's the head over the son. He's He's authority over the son. And the son is in submission to, comes under God's arrangement in respect of his relationship to the father. So what you see in the Godhead is, is no hierarchy, is nothing to do with any superiority, nothing to do with status or a vying for position or a competition amongst the members of the Godhead. Can you imagine that? But is a beautiful expression of what authority should look like, headship, submission, based on the equality uh, and the distinction. All right, so we're all good so far. <clears throat> I get to this point and realize we have, I, have, I, I always like to pray before um, launching into this, and I haven't. Except for the leaders. But I just want to pray, Lord, this morning. You will open our eyes to see things that might seem conceptual, but are utterly practical. Yes, Lord. Yes. And highly relevant yes. for the days we live in. Yes, Lord. Open our eyes, Lord, I pray, that we will receive revelation. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord to see and to grasp, even in our spirits, if we don't fully comprehend with our minds this morning. For these things are beyond our ability and places, Lord, but we know them to be true. And we thank you for them, Lord, this morning. Amen. Amen. Then we got into looking at um, really important aspects of of creation and fall and and saw that in... um, in uh, in the creation man uh, man was made in the image of god and therefore those characteristics of god the order within god the the headship the submission the equality the distinction all that are within god are are utterly expressed in mankind because man is made in that image <clears throat> however when we get to look at the fall we see that when when lucifer in the form of a serpent comes and challenges Eve. Did God really say? Um, and Adam and Eve uh, effectively embrace the serpent's word and put it above what God had actually said. They exalt the serpent's word over God's word. In doing so, they surrender their author- their authority over nature, over the rest of creation. They were created to rule over nature, rule over creation, to rule over the, the birds of the sea and the I said that last time, didn't I? The birds of the air and the fish of the sea. That's a very confusing thing. Um, They were created to rule over, but having fallen, now Adam must toil under the curse that's upon the land. And, And Adam becomes subservient to the very thing he was meant to rule over. That's what happens when we sin. And, and we noted in, in that sort of description of the fall, that the significance of the word of God, that was the central point upon which um, Satan came to tempt them. We noted that Adam sinned first by either not communicating God's instruction to Eve, certainly by not, by not stepping in when she's confronted by the serpent. Adam stands back and lets it all happen, but he was the one that received the command before Eve was created. We noted also that um, from that point onwards, the authority of man becomes corrupted, and, and the way man rules, the way man governs, the way authorities at work suddenly all these, um, all these evil aspects come into it, so that so that uh, Adam wants to dominate his wife, and Eve wants to have a position that God didn't give to her, and, and from that moment onwards, murder and strife and corruption and conflict come into the world. Everything's been corrupted by the fall. We noticed also that the, the very issue upon which the enemy uh, comes to Adam and Eve is, um, you know what, if you eat this, it won't be as God says, it will, it will be that you'll become like God. Being like God was what the, what the serpent, the, the Lucifer had always wanted. Yeah. I'll make myself like God. Adam and Eve were made just like God. They, yes. they didn't need to eat that uh, in order to become like God, if that were even possible. They were already like him. Yeah. And so you have in there that, all that, that, that mixed uh, complication that sin brings, yeah. tempting us to do something in order to achieve, in order to supposedly to achieve something that we already have. Yes, that's right. We're made in God's image. Hallelujah. The fall um, on the cross, praise God. I, I should have perhaps spent a bit more time on this last night. On the cross, Jesus destroyed the devil, yes. Hebrews tells us. And Colossians tells us he disarmed the authorities. And uh, the resurrected Christ is now seated far above all rule and authority. Jesus won back for us more than Adam ever lost. And so the fall did have a catastrophic impact on the cosmos, on the cosmos which is now undergoing total restoration. But the rise was greater than the fall. Hallelujah. We should preach more about the rise. Much better than the fall. (laughs) And Jesus brought forth a new order of redeemed mankind. Men and women reborn in God's image. Filled with God's spirit. Empowered with God's authority to fill the earth and bring in God's kingdom, which is what he originally commissioned Adam to do. Amen. Amen. And then we said, and I know this this is a long recap, but it is necessary. We said all this starts at home. And um, we read the scriptures in Ephesians, chapter 5, which talks of the husband being the head of the wife, uh, but as Christ is the head of the church. How is Christ the head of the church? In an utterly loving, sacrificial kind of leadership way. It says the wife submits to her husband. That's that word coming under God's arrangement. But it's as we submit to each other. And we saw that the husband and wife express authority together, which is exactly what Adam and Eve were given in the beginning. And so all they're uh, outworking of that is to be together. And that parenting, biblical parenting, is not just advisory. It is instructing. It is leading our children. And that the father retains a headship in all of that. So that's the recap. Part two and three and Whoever, who knows? You know what these series are like. We, we tend to mushroom a bit. Uh, part two today, we're going to talk about authority in the church. Uh, we're going to talk about the head, the gifts of Christ. Say something particularly about apostles and prophets. Particularly about apostles and elders. And then say something about authority in the gatherings of the church. Particularly talking about prayer and prophecy. And then uh, for a later date, we'll look at authority in the mission. Uh, how it is that we are sent as he was sent, how we can exercise authority, how we use the keys of the kingdom, how we, uh, how we minister healing and deliverance and dealing with times where we might have questions about whether that works or not. And uh, I would like us also to look at our role of judging in the age to come. All right? What what I like to do, actually, is is do a list like that, which looks really, um, um, uh, what's the word? Um, It's going to stretch us to look at that, but I know God wants us to see it, and he'll bring revelation as we do. So let's say something about authority in the church. Everybody okay? Good. Um, Well, the first thing to say, Christ is the head of the church, hallelujah. (laughs) Ephesians 4.15 is that right? That doesn't look quite right. Ephesians 4:15. Um, yes, it is. Good. Ephesians 4:15. Instead, um, in fact, what we'll do, we'll read from Ephesians four verse seven, up to here, because um, there's a, then we can pick up some of the other points as well. Ephesians four, verse seven. Well-known scriptures. from possibly the best book in the Bible. You shouldn't really say that, should you? (laughs) Ephesians 4, 7. Um, But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Christ is the head of the church. That is, that's stated uh, over and over again in, in the epistles. There are other references we could look at. He leads the church, he directs the church, he rules the church. If he's not the head, it's not the church. If it's a group of people not following his leading, not following his direction, not following his commandments, question whether it's the church, because Christ is the head of his church, which is his body. Uh, If you remember the the, the moment where um, Peter has his revelation, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. This wasn't revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. Peter's received a revelation from heaven that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus says, on this rock of revelation, I will build my church. In other words, the church is built on the word and the words of him who is the head of the church. And the head of the church has personally given gifts to the church. If if you're familiar with this, just please listen afresh, because this is so important this morning. The head of the church has personally, himself, Jesus, has ascended. The ascended Christ gives gifts to his church. These gifts are Described in Ephesians as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They are people. They're not positions. The gifts Jesus gives are people. He gives people to the church. He doesn't give apostolic ministry to the church. He doesn't give prophetic ministry. He doesn't give evangelism to the church. He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists. He doesn't give good teaching to the church. He gives teachers who teach well. He doesn't, he doesn't give, um, you know, a blueprint for shepherding, pastoring. He gives pastors. He gives people to the church. And these uh, are people, never positions, and they are always divinely given gifts, never humanly appointed labels or titles. People can call themselves whatever they want, but unless Jesus has given them as a gift... They don't satisfy this description. These gifts of Christ are given by Jesus to his church. They're never never self-appointed. And each of the gifts is an aspect of Christ himself. I love this because, you see, Jesus is the chief apostle. He is the chief prophet. He is the great evangelist. He is the great shepherd or pastor. And over and over again, you know, people called him the teacher. Jesus is the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. And therefore, every time in his ascended state, Jesus gives another gift to the church and says, here's another prophet, here's a teacher, here's an evangelist. Every time he does that, he's giving an aspect of himself. He, he, is it where he's sharing part of himself, a little bit more of himself with the church. And um, I love the fact that Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, you know, you need the apostle Apollos, you need the apostle Peter, you need, you need me. Um, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm your only father. But all these other apostles, they're all good for you. Because, you know, we need to embrace all the gifts of Jesus yeah, to right. get the fullest expression of Christ himself that we can receive. Yeah, if, all our, if all our experience was from one pastor, we would have a very stilted view of what Christ is like because no one pastor can express the breadth of Christ's shepherding towards his church no single apostle can represent all of Christ's sentness all his view of the body we need to receive from more than one to get the fullest possible expression of what Christ is like and Jesus uh, doesn't want to hold back in giving his gifts to the church He does want us to embrace them and receive them. So each gift is an aspect of himself and comes with a measure of Christ's authority inherent in the gifting that's been received. And that authority is the authority that is necessary to do the job. And the job of these gifts, verse 12, is to prepare God's people for works of service so the body may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, until we become mature, yes. until we attain, I love this, until we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so a man or a woman functioning in these gifts will do so with a measure of authority that will be necessary, needed, and if I can put it as way, commensurate with the task they've got. We'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But note this as well, verse 7. Each, to each one of us, grace has been given. And he goes on to, say, to describe how that grace is given. It's given in the giving of these people, these gifts. So every one of the gifts is also an expression of the grace of God towards us. And that's really important because any authority that functions without grace is surely a misrepresentation of what Jesus is giving his body. <clears throat> okay, do you hear me carefully there? Yes. Any authority that is not an expression of grace is, uh, is not this kind of authority we're talking about. If I could um, just take us on to the next, the next slide. Just to say something particularly about the apostles and prophets, because these five gifts are described, but two of them are mentioned elsewhere in Ephesians with a particular uh, relevance. The first mention is in, in Ephesians 2, verse 20, where it says that the church is built on the foundation, this is Ephesians 2, verse 20, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. We sang about that this morning. He's the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are described as being a foundation in the church. And Ephesians 3 verse 5 talks about um, uh, a revelation of the grace of God which has not, which was not made known to men in other generations as it's now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So amongst those five gifts, two of them, the apostles and prophets, are described as having a particular revelation. And by virtue of that revelation, they become foundations in the church. Elsewhere, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul talks about, he says, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And what he's describing there is, again, it's not a hierarchy, not first, second, and third on a ladder, but functionally in the church. Because of the revelation they carry. The first foundations laid in the church alongside the cornerstone are the are the the foundations of the the apostle and prophet. And if I could say it this way, it's not just that the apostle and prophet lay those foundations. They are those foundations. They themselves are foundations. There's a lovely, we'll come on to the we'll come on to talk about elders in a minute, but there's a lovely picture of of, of, um, uh, in. In the, in Christ's days, how how an, uh, a shepherd would um, form a sheep would 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 close the door of a sheep pen by literally laying across it, so that he becomes the gate. It's not just that he's like a gate or he opens a gate; he is the gate. Yeah. And in a similar way, here the apostle prophets—they're not just—they don't just lay foundations; they are foundations. Their their life, their ministry, their their um, uh, their experience becomes a foundation for the church. Um, particularly, though, the word has a lot to say about apostles and their authority. This is not a study on apostles. There's loads more because I'm just focusing on the issues to do with authority. The very word apostolos means somebody who is sent forth and sent with authority. So when you read in Mark 3, Mark 6, Jesus sending the 12, the first 12, it says he sends them with authority. And that's a fundamental characteristic of this ministry. The apostle has the authority to do the job he's been called to do. Paul, um, who of course we know most about, he often describes himself as a father who loves the church as his own children. And, and that places this apostolic gift as a, as a head in the house. Like a father, not like a father, a father. Yeah. Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, "You, you, you need Apollos. You need Peter. You need me. In fact, um, you may have many guardians, but you only have one father in Christ. I became your father because, he, because in a sense, he gave birth to the church. He caused the worked with. Uh, he worked to see the church born. He laboured to see the church come into life. He had a fatherly." Role in the life of that church, and Paul. If you turn to Second Corinthians, you okay with all this? Good. Second Corinthians ten, verse eight. This is so important. Paul, Paul, Paul doesn't hold back in talking about his authority. And again, this you know you might think, well, it'd be it'd be better just to keep it quiet or uh, not not raise things that could become contentious he he embraces it head on but he describes it this way he says um, even even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down and again in chapter 13 uh, verse 10 this is why I write these things when i'm absent that when i I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not tearing you down. See, the apostles' function is very much to uh, to see the church built up and become all that Jesus wants it to be, and he has an authority for building up the church, never for tearing it down. Um And he exercises that authority within... Paul talks about having a sphere or or a field of of, of activity that was the range, the the scope, the dimensions within which Paul functioned with authority. And um, there are a few things I just suggest that, uh, that this apostolic authority, ways that this apostolic authority is outworked. Firstly... Within an apostle's sphere, he will establish a body of consistent doctrine. Frequently, you find Paul saying, this is what I teach in all the churches. We're going to come on to that, some of that in a moment. Um, this, is, this, is the, this is the way in all the churches. The early church, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. So there was doctrine that brought security to the church because, because they knew this is the same doctrine everywhere. We don't have a different living rock church doctrine to an all-nations doctrine to a this, that, or the other doctrine. We've got an apostolic doctrine. It brings great security. Uh, alongside that, an apostle will correct error. Uh, the book of Galatians is really all about correcting error. The Galatians have um, started well in grace, by faith, and now they've, they've become... Uh, They've become legalistic. They're even thinking of getting circumcised, and Paul Paul is quickly in there to say, no, 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 you must continue the way you started. It's all by the grace of God. An apostle will bring judgments and commands that will safeguard the church. The reference there in 1 Corinthians 5 is to where a man is found to be in an incestuous relationship with his mother. And uh, for some reason, this hasn't been dealt with in the church, and Paul... Uh, brings the, the strongest of commandments and judgments because the issue is so serious that he has to preserve the very life and testimony of the church. So, apostles will do that. And um, uh, Paul says in, in Thessalonians, I, I, could be, I, I could act in a certain way, but I prefer to act gently because the church is children. That will always be the heart of the apostle. And, and the last thing just to mention t- today is that apostles will appoint elders in the churches. And we'll just turn to these two verses, Acts 14. Acts 14, verse um, 23, it says, Paul and Barnabas, both apostles, appointed elders for them in each church church. And then in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, it says, the reason I left you in uh, Crete, Titus, was to appoint elders. So if you put the next slide up, Katie, um, an apostle will do that by either directly or through a delegate like Titus, will appoint elders in the churches, and, and will do that as an extension of his apostolic ministry to the church. Kerry appointed Christopher and myself and Rich laid hands on us and um, delegated responsibility to us to, uh, to lead and to care for the church, uh, but not to um, cut us adrift or to say, I no longer have any authority here, but to say, you brothers are an extension of my apostolic ministry and government and authority into the church. So an apostle will do that. Uh, That's how we see uh, the way apostolic government works. And um, and, and, and in doing that, it releases the apostle to extend his own ministry, his own apostolic sphere. Because because the the function of apostle is very much to extend the kingdom by planting churches and taking new territory. Eldership is, um, is not a gift. It is a task. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, if you'd just like to turn there, talks about elders being, um, or rather eldership being a noble task. Both those words are really important, aren't they? (laughs) Um, It is a task, it's not a gift. That's why um, uh, men can be appointed into eldership and then can step down or step out of that appointment or... Uh, could resign their, their position, I guess. But um, um, eldership is, is not a gift that's with you for life because it's in you. It is a task you do. Yeah, right. And you can do it for a season. Uh, you can do it for a short time or a long time. It's a task. And, um, and the, the task of eldership involves many things, but if I could just mention some of the things that have to do with authority because that's our focus. The elder is to direct the affairs of the church, the ESV says to rule over the church. That's, that's clearly a, a task that has authority uh, involved in it. Um, the elders are to shepherd the flock of God. Uh, mentioned that a couple of times. The elders are to be able to teach doctrine and, and should be able to refute error. An elder should be sufficiently, uh, May not, not all elders um, will... will, will um, Focus on teaching and preaching, the word makes that clear, but all elders should be able to be, can be sufficiently competent in the scriptures to to, to hear and refute error. Yes, that's right. To say, uh, I may not be the best at, uh, you know, putting together uh, all the reasons, but I know that's not true. Here's some verses that show why this isn't right. That's, that's erroneous teaching. Nothing could be more important today. You find in, in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus the issue in both cases. Paul is uh, Timothy is in Ephesus. Titus is on the island of Crete. And in both places, there is masses of, um, of uh, false doctrine being taught. And at the heart of dealing with the false doctrine is that in both cases... Paul is saying, you must appoint elders. Yeah. Because the, 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 the proper response to false doctrine is elders who can teach correct doctrine. Okay? So, so that's the part of the task of eldership. And uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says, submit to your leaders, for they watch over you. And certainly, in my view, it seems to be describing the role of elders, leaders who are elders. And it says, um, submit to their authority. They have authority... Um, or rather the task they are doing comes with an authority to do it, and we should submit to that authority, but equally, here's the balance again. There's always a a balance, isn't there? There's always another side to the coin. 1 Peter 5, verse 3 says, Elders must not lord it over the people. It should be a proper expression of headship and submission. We believe that because of their headship, because of their government, because of the fatherly role, Apostles and elders are men, and the suitability for eldership is is set out in these uh, Titus and Timothy as being uh, how a man is uh, is or isn't proven in his home life, in his family life, because that is the starting point for everything. All right. So I just got uh, one more uh, little piece to do, and then we're going to talk about prayer and prophecy. Um, this next one, I'll cover it quickly because we'll pick this up much more when we talk about the mission. All believers have received the right, and the word is exousia, the, the authority, the right to become children of God. Thank you. Lord. Isn't that fantastic? You know, we've received an authority, as it were, to become children of God. That's right. A, the right, the power, the permission. To become children of God. Paul writes to the Ephesians says, I want you to know the hope that you have. Yes. The incomparably great power that's yours. And he says, it's like the power that raised Christ from the dead. And when he was raised, he was raised far above all authority. Yes. The apostle wants us to know the hope, the power, the authority, the place we are. It goes on to say, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Yes. That's a lot of authority. That's a position of authority. And he's filled us with his spirit and he lives in us. We heard that this morning. Just to say this, because this this I think is so relevant. You know, we have the power and authority to resist the devil. James 4 verse 7 says that. 1 Peter 5 verse 9 says that. We have the authority to live self-controlled lives. We have the authority to pray and move mountains. We have the authority to prophesy and build up the church. These are authority issues. Which takes me on to saying something about authority in our gatherings. I'm going to take 10 minutes on this and then we will be done. So, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Um, again, these notes will be available. This is um, scripture that is um, often debated, talked about. Try and be really simple with it. Uh, we teach this on our belonging day. Um, that might be a long time ago for some of us. I just think it's, it's or, or never in the case of others. But this, it's so important at this time that we have a fresh appreciation of what the apostle is saying here. Verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, okay? God, Christ, man, woman. He's describing an order. God is the head of Christ, is the head of man, is the head of woman. It's the word kephale head over. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, the word is again kafale, but clearly this time he's just talking about the head, the physical head. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. I think the second head there is his spiritual head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. She should have her hair cut off. And if, and if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, She should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. We'll come to this. But he's taking things back to creation. Verse 10. For this reason, and because of the angels... The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay. Anybody ever read that before? Anybody got some questions about it? Um, this is what I'd like to say. Um, first of all, that head uncovering and covering, because it's about both... <laughs> It's not just about a woman covering her head, it's about a man uncovering his head. Head uncoverings in prayer and prophecy have to do with authority in the church. This is an apostolic doctrine that's based on the order of headship that's found in creation. The head of the man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, the head of Christ is God, where the word is kephale, the authority over, head over. Again, what we must say here is there is an equality of essence and nature between father and son as it is between man and woman. Galatians 3.28 says, In Christ there is neither man nor woman. Redemptively before God we're the same. Exactly the same. There's an equality, but there is a distinction of role, of responsibility, of function. Do you remember I said to you last time that even after when Adam uncovered his wife and she led them into the sin that she she was tempted by Satan when God comes to address the situation it's Adam who has to give an account because his role is different he was responsible he was the head Um, so this is to do with uh, equality with a distinction nothing to do with hierarchy, nothing to do with superiority, and it's the same. You can't argue for a different relationship between the way Paul has constructed this whole thing by starting like that. You can't then argue for something different between man and woman as there is between father and son. That just doesn't work. Next slide, please, Katie. He says men should pray and prophesy with their physical head uncovered and women with their heads covered. Those two activities, praying and prophesying, were the other priestly activities, or at least the praying was a priestly activity, the prophesying is a, is a prophes, prophet's activity, but in the Old Testament, only men could do those things. Yes. And both functions carry great authority. Yes. When we pray as a church, folks, we are speaking to Almighty God. Yes. And when prophecy is brought, it is, it's the authority for us to hear the heart and voice of God. Yes. That's pretty awesome. Yes, it is. So Paul makes the statement, you, you wish he'd said a bit more. <laughs> but he, he says what he says, and then he says, um, verse, verse 9 I think it is, um, verse 10, for this reason. Okay, so there's a reason in here. There's a reason why he gives this instruction. It seems to me there are three Aspects to this reason. In verses nine and ten, the first thing is, which leads directly onto that statement, um, man didn't come from woman; woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It's simply this, and it is simply this: it's the order God created things in. He created the man first, and the woman came from the man. He didn't create the other. That's the order he created them in. And if I could say this. There is simply, in this practice, is simply a distinction between men and women. Never has that been more important. We make a distinction. That's one of the reasons, I believe, because of the order of creation. And then secondly, because there's something about what we do to our head that honors or dishonors our spiritual head. Some of the translations, actually, uh, when it comes to um, if, a, if a man prays with his head covered, he dishonors his head. If a woman with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. They put a little quote around the second head because it, there's an implication is this is now talking about, in the man's case, Christ, in the woman's case, man, her, their spiritual head. Because it honors our spiritual head. There's something in this practice, whether we understand it or not, that honors our head. We minister with authority. We minister with authority. We pray with authority. We we prophesy with authority only when we respect the authority over our lives. That is a principle of authority. We can only have authority if we're under authority. And thirdly, and most intriguingly, because of the angels who are present when we gather, who observe our gatherings, and who fully understand God's order, and who have first hand experience of the catastrophic effects of upturning God's order. A third of the angels lost their place in heaven and were cast to the earth when they rebelled with Lucifer and said, we don't like the order God has established. We're going to try and create a new one. For this reason, I don't know whether you find my reason convincing. And then he says this, uh, for this reason, a woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Yes. Here we are, folks. This is a sign of authority. Yes. Notice who's, who has this sign. It's the woman. It's not the man. This is, this is a sign of a woman's authority. The only mention of authority in this passage is just here. This is not a passage about a woman being under a man's authority. It's not a passage about a man having all the authority. Sorry. This is a passage about the order God has created a simple practice that helps us make some distinctions and a sign of her authority in all of this. It's a sign, firstly, to the watching angels that our gatherings are are in order. It's a sign to demonic powers that she is under God's arrangement and not left uncovered like Eve was. It's a sign that she's under authority and therefore has authority when she prays or prophesies. Paul finishes his passage. He says this is is taught in all the churches. In other words, you know, Paul Paul ministered in Greek churches, in Jewish churches, in mixed churches. Paul ministered in churches of different cultures but taught the same thing everywhere. It's not a cultural issue. And I would say... I, I, I've some, for some reason, I've got chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 have come out of my Bible. And it's just because I use them a lot, I think. But you know, in days gone by, chapters 12 and 14, which dealt with gifts of the Spirit, were ignored by the church. There's a whole bunch of doctrines here that have to do with the gathered church. Yes. I would ask why this part, portion is any more ignorable than any other portion of these scriptures. The other other portions were ignored at great weakness to the church. Okay? Um, But I just want to sort of finish by saying this. This is is also a mystery in Christ. And and these things are not comprehensible comprehensible by academics and professors. You can read as many commentaries as you want on this by very scholarly people. I've read Gordon Fee on this, who says nobody really understands this. Um, excuse me, Paul understood it perfectly. Yeah. These things aren't necessarily understood by academics and professors. They are revealed to apostles and prophets. They're mysteries of Christ. Paul, uh, Peter says, Paul writes many things that are hard to understand. Peter writes that about his colleague Paul. He says, Paul writes about many things that are hard to understand. Just because something's hard to understand doesn't make it untrue. Or ignorable. Yeah. Right. So praise God. Um, I Hope that helps. Um, just to say next time Rich will be covering the following topics topics. How we are, if you put the next couple of slides up, how we are go on the centers as he was and how to exercise authority and how we use the keys of the kingdom. He's not flinching yet. Yeah. Healing and deliverance. And judging in the age to come. Yeah, maybe that one. So, well, there's lots to come up still, but I just want to finish with these, this verse, which I read um, a couple of weeks ago, really blessed me. You ready? Hebrews 1, 2 to 3 in the Amplified Bible. Just enjoy this. In the last of these days, he has spoken to us in the person of a son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things also by and through whom he created the worlds and the reaches of space and the ages of time. He made, produced, built, operated, and arranged them in order. He arranged them in order. He is the sole expression of the glory of God, the light being, the outraying, or the radiance of the divine. And he is the perfect imprint and very image of God's nature, upholding and maintaining and guiding and propelling the universe by his mighty word of power. When he, had, when he had, by offering himself, accomplished our cleansing of sins and riddance of guilt, he sat down at the right hand of the divine majesty on high. Amen. Could we just stand together? Say, Lord Jesus... We love you, we love your word, we love your order, we love the Father's arrangement, and Lord, to the best of our ability, we want to submit ourselves to godly order, for we know in our spirits nothing will win the world in these days of uncertainty than a church that's secure and in peace. So, Lord, I commit to you all we've seen and heard this morning. We ask you to give us revelation and make these things clear and plain to us, we say, Lord. Amen and amen. 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 Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We meet every Sunday at 10.30am in Stony Stanton and 4pm in Tamworth and Market Harborough. Feel free to come and visit us. We'd love to meet you.